1: Hey, pull up a chair. It's Hacks on Tap with David Axelrod, Robert Gibbs, and Mike Murphy. They weren't just uh, not allowed to do it. They were pushed. A few cases, they were assaulted. In all cases, they were put in a corral. So far away, probably the closest they got is from here to the back of that room we could do like a um, did you all watch my cousin Vinnie you know the movie my, it's one of my favorite uh, law movies because he comes from Brooklyn and uh, when the the nice lady who said she saw and then he uh, he, he says to her how many f- fingers do I how many fingers will I got up and she says uh, three well she was too far away to see it was only two these people were further away than my cousin Vinny was from the witness. They couldn't see a
2: thing. Murphy, I, I really don't know where to begin with that, but I, I think maybe the best place to begin is to bring in the guests we have joining us um, who just coincidentally from your home state but lives in Alabama where my cousin Vinny is supposed to take place,
1: John Anzalone. Hey, welcome, Anzo. <laughs> Mike, Robert, um, I feel like when I listen to Giuliani or any of these people, you're—it's like living in an either alternative universe or you know, reading or living in real time an Onion article or maybe a Borat <laughs> movie, right? I mean, it's just like. Uh, well,
2: careful on the Borat references with Giuliani because, unfortunately, yeah, he's already been in that. Area. That was on purpose. That was on
1: purpose. <laughs>
3: well, um. Joe Pesci, noted constitutional scholar, is going to be weighing in later, so we're, we're going get to the bottom of these legal issues. It's unbelievable.
2: It is. Uh, so let's give a little background on John. I met John um, a long, uh, more, more years ago than I want to admit on this podcast, but uh, his cl- re- most recent claim to fame... Uh, is Joe Biden's pollster. And so we look forward to talking a little bit uh, about how that race, uh, what he saw and how that race played out. Uh, but let's start with w- what in the hell is going on?
3: We live in a banana republic now. I'm going to go down to Argentina to study how to properly run a uh, a political system because this is, you know, for the first time in American history, we have a president who luckily is basically just armed with bullshit but is is out literally having kind of a hostile reaction to an obvious election result, which is, in the end, they're going to throw him in a wheelbarrow and take him out the door on the 20th, one way or the other. But the damage he's doing, I mean, we see polling showing that 40, 50 million people think the election was fraudulent. And and that is just, it's treason. You know, I I don't normally throw that word around, but this is unbelievable.
1: At the end of the day, I I do think that um, you know, it, it, this is a sideshow, right? I think we can all yeah. agree that it's a sideshow. There's not, you know, a lot of um heavy hitters in this party who are at the end of the day going to stand up and back this guy to the very end. I think that Trump clearly puts pressure on people like the minority, uh, the 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 uh, leaders of the Michigan legislature who are going to go to D.C. tomorrow, who both have acknowledged, by the way, in the press that you know, <clears throat> um, basically. Uh, Biden's leading by an insurmountable mountain. and it, it, it's not going to change. But they're going to go and, you know, kiss the ring, and it hopefully will be over uh, after that. I think the 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 silver lining of this on the poll, and you mentioned Mike, the number of people who do believe that that this is real or fraud, is that a super majority of people are kind of in the in the reasonable camp here and ready to move on, uh, and 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 that I think at the end of the day, uh, will prevail and, and make us feel better about what's going, what, what, what will eventually, uh, happen.
3: Yeah, I, I agree with that. I, <laughs> I have to say though, just in the theater, of the absurd, and, and we are, i I'm getting endless texts about this and people freaking out, particularly on the democratic side. So I'm going to take a minute to go through the crazy Michigan stuff here. Uh, we're, we're both Michiganders, John and I, so we're going to defend the honor of our state a little, hopefully we'll be able to, uh, down the road. So the Wayne County, which is Detroit and some suburbs to the West and South, uh, some of which are more white and Trumpy than the city itself. They have a canvassing board, like all 83 counties, and it's pretty perfunctory. They have one job, count the darn votes, supervise, you know, the mechanics of it. So they got together, they deadlocked. There was apparently quite a lot of turbulence and and complaint, as there should have been. And then the two Republicans on the board reversed themselves. One guy's gone into hiding. The other has kind of become a bit of a a wingnut media star over it. And now it'll go up. Now they're trying to recant what they said. But that doesn't have a lot of grip. The vote's been done. And if there's a deadlock, it'll go to the state board of canvassing. So I predict that cable news is going to discover... The retired state senator who currently runs a florist shop on the Ohio border down in Monroe County, Norm, who is going to be one of the two Republicans who is going to have to decide to be crazy or not. And my instinct is he's not going to be crazy, but his wife said she saw hijinks in Detroit, which, John, as you know, in the mythology of Michigan politics for 30 years, The Democrats always complain about, you know, all kinds of uh, Republican high crimes. And the the Republicans all look around. Something's going on in Detroit, kind of like Chicago. And, of course, it's always just urban legend crap. But here we are. And, you know, it is – and Trump is fanning it. So I I agree. I think the the head of the state senate basically said, no, we're not going to do any crazy elector thing. But they're flirting with it which is just so damn crazy. And I think that Joe Biden is going to have to put the country back together.
1: But can we also talk about the genesis of this? Yeah. Which is, you know, Donald Trump has had a problem because he's a misogynist with Gretchen Whitmer, the governor of Michigan, from day one. And, you know, the fact is, is that she was doing the right thing for her state during uh, the coronavirus. She still is. Uh, She showed real leadership in a void of leadership at the national level. And that ticked um, Trump off in April, I guess it was, March or April. Uh, And she pushed back on him and and kind of became a hero because of it. And she's had to do it multiple times. And Shirky and Chatwood, the the leaders of the the, um, legislature, quite frankly, have enabled that. And I think that they're enabling him again by going up there. Um, but let's not forget a lot of this. They, they just dropped the last lawsuit in Michigan, by the way, right? So this yeah. is all theater, um, and this is because I believe that Donald Trump has an obsession with a strong woman leader, uh, Gretchen Whitmer, uh, and <clears throat> is why he'll just continually needle uh, the state of Michigan. But
3: you're right. They're playing into the bad kabuki theater, which is convincing people who don't know the pro wrestling aspect of this ridiculousness, that there's something wrong when there's nothing wrong. And, and this is precedent breaking in American history.
1: Well, and I think what Monday we have the state board of canvassers meet and you could have the same right. dynamic as the first Wayne County vote, which would again be absurd. Um, and, you know, if you ever saw one of the commissioners in Wayne County, the Ned Stabler, who uh, chastised, um, you know, his colleagues, Uh, where there was bigger discrepancies during the primary than there was during the general. Uh, And yet, you know, they, they went ahead and certified uh, in the primary, but not the general. And so, you know, we may have more Kabuki theater uh, with the state canvas board, quite frankly.
3: Yeah. That's my point about Norm, the florist or the other guy is a young lawyer from Kent County where the interesting thing there is Kent County is kind of square and God fearing Dutch reform. And, I don't know. I think culturally, Schenkel, the florist, when he was in the state Senate, was not that crazy. So I don't know. It's going to be interesting to see if the Trump evil field can warp even them. But the bottom line is, it is all kabuki and noise. So you can turn off your cable. Don't worry. It's going to get certified Biden's going to get the electors and Biden's going to get sworn in on the 20th, as it should be. Right.
2: As a reminder, the the current the current total in Michigan is Biden plus one hundred and fifty four thousand. So we're not talking about this isn't one bad
1: machine. Right. This is this isn't five hundred
2: and thirty seven
1: votes in uh, in Florida. Can we put it in context that that is 14 times the victory margin that Trump had?
3: Right, right, With none of these hijinks, by the way, With none the of these Dems hijinks. didn't try this. I'm sitting right. in my hands, and I won't sign the
1: papers. Crap. Uh, when it was really tight, could you imagine if Hillary Clinton had pulled this in 2016?
3: Oh, there'd be there'd be uh, anyway. We know, but what Murphy, you you
2: you're feeling so so. Is it because I will say one of the parts of this Kabuki theater is watching the sheer number of Republicans that are going along with this charade whether it is i kind of feel like you know we you know the two-year-old is having a temper tantrum and instead of continuing to walk through the mall they've decided to sit down and you let them catch their breath and then you pick them back up and it's time to keep walking but i kind of feel like everybody's just letting trump have his temper tantrum i I mean i hope you're right in that that these michigan legislatures legislators are going to go into the white house and say so you lost by 154,000 votes and and there's nothing that anybody can do about that. I just yeah, I just, I just think don't know they're if that's
3: chicken out as, right. in the room because everybody chickens out in the room with somebody who's a president. So I don't know why the hell they're going, but look, what the repubs all think back channel or most of them, not a few of the rare patriots, is look, Trump's crazy. Trump's toast. He's going to be gone on the 20th. And I really don't want to, like, get in and provide commentary on how offensive it is because it won't change Trump and I'll get a primary. Right. You know, so they're like, I'm going to let them die slow.
2: Right. But my question is, so, like, when does it end? Does it end with the electoral college on the 14th of December? Does it end 1155?
1: On- it ends it ends when each state certifies. I mean, that's at, at the end of the day. In
3: the real politique it does. Then, the, right. then it's yeah. done legally, but it may take a while for that to... Right. You know that that's like the duck's feet under the water, the reality. But Trump is, of course, the anti-reality guy. So he'll keep yeah. squawking, and you know he'll say that their robot electors are slipping in, and you know he'll just yeah. keep keep doing it till they they hood him like a
1: falcon and throw him out of the window. But but kudos for example to some people who are standing up to Trump. I mean, you know, the Secretary of State of Georgia, yeah, quite frankly. Asperger. I mean, you know. Listen, considering who, who was the last Secretary of State of Georgia, Kemp, the governor, uh, <laughs> and we can get into that in the shenanigans that he pulled while Secretary of State. I mean, you know, I give the guy credit for standing yeah. up, um, you know, and doing the right thing. It is tough in the Trump world um, because he is a vengeful person. Um, and, you know, th- that's a problem. I mean, you know, Trump will have someone primary this guy, like you said, Mike.
3: Yeah, I mean these these guys uh, anybody who's being brave about this. And again, my view is we're not asking them to land on Anzio beach here, you know. It's but in their politics and their personal self-interest, which is clearly the organizing principle, it, they're 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 buying primaries. And that but, is that's a tough crew. And one thing, I mean, look, I you know, I'm here, I'm an apostate. I supported Biden. I'm glad he won. I gave him money. We Republican votes against Trump. We spent 30-40 million dollars on it. But I do get that. And sometimes my Democratic, I see some of the electeds being so pious about it, they're morally right, but then again, their primary voters all hate Trump. You know, so it's, um, I I I get the squeamishness, but I I do wish more would rise to the occasion.
2: Yeah, I do too, because I think what, I don't want to slide too far past is, There is real significant damage that's done by either 40 to 50 million people, as you mentioned, not having confidence in a system that, quite frankly, is predicated on uh, us all choosing our leaders, but also secondarily, and and I was doing a little back of the math envelope yesterday. I mean, if we wait until the electoral college is complete on the 14th of December to start the presidential transition, that's literally the the 50% point. Half of the presidential transition will be over. And lest the viewers or Murphy think that I'm going all League of Women Voters on you, there's real issues from security to vaccination logistics. Um, th- there's a lot of stuff that is being put on hold in a country that is challenged right now because of what's happening in and around the White House.
1: Well, I would also add to that not only on the transition at the federal level, but again, even in a place like Michigan, uh, the governor has better things to do with the surge of COVID and the need of logistics of uh, uh, everything that has to go with that. um, And in a recession uh, uh, and economic uh, issues as well, you know, these legislative leaders uh, should be working with her to solve problems, not to uh, help uh, enable a president who's lost. Uh, and create more problems. And that, that's, you know, time is time is uh, um, uh, important.
3: I'm hoping one of the Michigan guys will at least want to carve out a little page in history when they're standing there with Trump and pull the old Admiral Jerry Denton move, which you guys as Alabamas will know, where he blinks, blinks. with Morse code, you know, rescue me, because uh, th- it really is going to be a hostage video. And then the last bit of Kabuki theater, just to dwell on that for one second before we move on there will be some faithless elector you know this happens occasionally in in history where some guy puts on a napoleon hat and refuses to vote the right way now again it's kabuki it won't change the outcome but the media will grab on it because a lot of people really have never looked under the hood of what canvassing you know how this works so this this thing is it's just going to jerk people around psychologically all the way through and you know it's our president at work
2: so let's repeat this just for those that are that are that are still on edge, Murphy. Remember, you've you've come over for a a, a short stay on on this side of the aisle, and and you've now been indoctrinated into the uh, inherent nervousness of of the Democratic Party. Not uh, me.
3: I'm telling you, I'm right. still anti. Though I am getting my mouth cap tomorrow, so I'll fit in. <laughs> See, you'll uh, you'll
2: be fitted, but uh, it's yeah. gonna
3: be fine. Democrats. Biden's gonna be the president, and Biden knows what to do. To his great credit, one of the reasons I think he won, and so I'd love to hear your view on this because you were right in the middle of it all, is that Biden represents a return to some sane normalcy where your political opponent is not your enemy. The truth is, in the secret world of of how things get done in Washington, uh, Biden has a better relationship personally with Mitch McConnell than Trump ever did. Yeah, But, you know, they have different agendas. But Biden will be able, I believe, to do a lot of repair work, and he has been smart to publicly make that a cornerstone because people need to hear it. Well, and and And
1: voters know that. I mean, we saw it. Like, we saw it in the qualitative that, you know, first of all, the the number one trait that people um, always talked about uh, for VP Biden is his experience. Uh, And they feel like not only his experience uh, vis-a-vis, the mishandling and inexperience of Trump uh, with COVID, which again, Biden fills one of his big, Trump's big weaknesses, and that was really important. But they all, all also got a sense that he knew, knows his way around Washington and that he's a guy who would reach, out, reach across party lines uh, and get things done. Voters have become incredibly pragmatic. They're like really transactional, right? And so compromise, bipartisanship, even with Democratic uh, primary voters, Um, are not bad words. I mean, they are ready to get things done that will help them. We are beyond the aspirational. We're beyond the kumbaya. People are pragmatic and transactional and they're fatigued and they're tired of the chaos. They just want, as you said, someone who's reasonable and and people to come together, parties to come together to get things done. And that's what you get in Joe Biden. And I think that's one of the reasons he won this race
2: take us through a little bit of this. When was, uh, when, when, Anzo? when were you most nervous? I, I mean, the one thing that we kept having to do for eight weeks in the general election was come on this show twice a week and tell everybody that nothing had changed and that stability was ruling the world. And it began to get kind of boring. Um, what if anything in, 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 or what in 2020 made you most nervous?
1: Well, listen, I think that, again, when you take a look at post-election books and things like that, if there's one you know, theme of it, it is stability. I mean, the stability of Joe Biden's numbers, quite frankly, in the primary and in the general. I mean, forget about the caucus states and all that type of stuff, but generally his numbers were incredibly stable. And I think that what we fought all through the summer and the fall were the perceptions that headlines were dynamic changers, when in reality, it was always stability or or Biden actually moved up. And so whether it was George Floyd or whether it was Ruth Bader Ginsburg, right? I mean, it's like all of the, whether it was the protests uh, in uh, Oregon or Kenosha, et cetera, there was always this sense among the insiders and the opinion elites and the news media that, oh my God, this was gonna change the dynamics of the race. And what it did was it was basically a straight line and or Biden actually gained uh, by, you know, because, um, for example, Trump's worst job rating was handling the protests and George Floyd and all of that. And so again, uh, in, in the sense, uh, in the word that uh, Murphy used about reasonable, they always felt that, that Trump made every one of these crises worse. Right, and then right. Biden was the experienced hand who would approach it in a steady way and have a plan to deal with it. Um, and so listen, all these little fires worry you in some way because we're, we're paid to worry inside campaigns and fix problems. So all of those little uh, episodes were concerning, uh, including the, you know, the attacks on defund and the attacks on taxes, et cetera. But the fact is, is that we didn't let any um, um, uh, room for that. We always were in a position to, to respond, pivot, uh, and, and uh, make it right.
3: I thought you guys were smart after the Floyd stuff all started when Trump tried to move it to law and order. Now, luckily, the Trump campaign was financially crippled. You guys should send a Medal of Honor to Parscale and Kushner for that. But you, you had a tough campaign decision to make there. Maybe maybe it wasn't that tough, but traditionally it would be. Do we go engage in Trump's issue in essentially a defensive fight, or do we just try to change the channel and move on? And I think you guys figured, one, this thing is too big to change the channel and move on. we got to engage and beat it to a, hopefully a draw. And two, we have the money to do it. I don't think there's a single day after the Republican convention where Trump had the money to match or beat you guys on TV. So you had the muscle to kind of be able to, to fight your way out of that corner. And I thought some people would say, oh, never give them their issue. But I, I thought it was exactly well, the right move. But
1: but here's, here's the other thing I would say about Joe Biden. There was never a time during this campaign where you're dealing with all these crises that he did not meet the moment. Um, and what was interesting about, again, early on, because of COVID and, and him being isolating, et cetera, is when he did big speeches, he'd go on there with the podium and the flags in the back and he looked, sounded like a president, right? You know, when he gave his big speech on COVID plan, he sounded like a president. When he gave his big speech, uh, what you're talking about uh, on law and order, you know, talking about what he believed in, um, in, in terms of post uh, George Floyd and the protests and criminal justice reform and not being, you know, for defund, et cetera, et cetera. You know, he sounded and looked like a president when he would go up there uh, and talk about foreign policy. He sounded and looked like a president. And quite frankly, even in the Democratic Convention, which was spectacular. And and Stephanie Cutter should just get kudos for that left Mm -hmm. and right, what she put on, which was his coming out party. He looked and sounded like a president with leadership. And let's not forget, he laid out his uh, vision and agenda. Uh, Ninety percent of our TV commercials were positive. Right, we gave voters something to grab onto and say, "Okay, that's the type of president that Joe Biden is going to be."
3: Yeah, because you, know, you know people hated Trump, so you just right. you, had, exactly. you had that but for they, free. They, Why not run with it?
1: They needed they needed to know more about Joe Biden, and and they got it. One nerdy follow up, and then
3: let, let Gibbs go here. So thank you, Robert, for letting me butt in here. I'm just curious, and our, our nerdy listeners are curious too. During the early days of the primary, when you were like, "Okay, we got the big national lead." because we got the name ID, we got a good relationship in the African-American community, but we're going to go get chopped up in some of these early contests, because that's the, kind of the dynamic of these things, and fundraising is okay, not great. Who were you most worried about in the primary? Was it Warren? Was it Bernie? Who did you think might
1: catch fire? It was. I mean, I think that, again, if you, you looked at you know, the public and the internal stuff, I mean, it was clearly Bernie, right, because he had a base and he had a path. Uh, He had a path not only in Iowa, but clearly uh, New Hampshire because of uh, of being the favorite son, and because you immediately went to a caucus state in Nevada, right? Right, right. Um, And so here's, I think, that what's important, and again, on on these post-election books, you know, people always talk about South Carolina, which, of course, was incredibly important. I don't think people give enough credit to how important our second-place finish was in Nevada, right? Because you had Buttigieg and Klobuchar – Um, with momentum, right, out of Iowa and New Hampshire. You knew that Bernie was going to win it. And a third or fourth place finish may have changed the dynamics a bit, Uh, uh, again, even with Bloomberg. I mean, Bloomberg shouldn't have done the debate. But us being second place, even though the margin was fairly uh, wide between us and um, Sanders, that that second place in Nevada became really important going into South Carolina and and eventually Clyburn uh, endorsing, et cetera.
3: Yeah, it showed that New Hampshire wasn't fatal. You were, you were alive. Well, and it showed, too, uh,
2: which, again, was on steroids after South Carolina. There, there were, at that point, only two candidates that could put together a multiracial coalition. And, you know, th- th- that just wasn't happening with, uh, you know, it wasn't happening with Elizabeth Warren. It wasn't happening with Pete Buttigieg. It wasn't happening with Amy Klobuchar. And, you know, and then I think, look, I I think in many ways, when you look back at Obama in 2008, you know, people always talk about Iowa, and Iowa was certainly important. Uh, Winning South Carolina, basically the dominoes start to fall because the primaries that come from that, Alabama, Tennessee, Kentucky, Mississippi, Louisiana, like all those states that look a lot like South Carolina looks, and all of a sudden you can really pile up that lead.
1: And, And another little trivia fact about Nevada and how important it was to come in second and not third or fourth. You know, who was brought in uh to to go on the ground and oversee the operation there, which was one general mallet. People forget yeah, that's that. what I thought. Right. People forget right. that. Um, but again, and we changed, I mean, like, you know, we went in there and we we uh decided to communicate differently. Um you know we ran on him taking on the NRA and guns because of October one in Mandalay Bay, etc. Um and so, you know, there was there was some uh, there was some different strategy there um uh, and some good work by o'Malley and the and the team on the ground don't get me wrong um that was really really interested and probably should be dissected a little bit more
2: one of the things that that I started seeing and I think Democrats started to get nervous about as well is that that last sort of two weeks Trump is you know and again it's a public health disaster, but he's doing five rallies a day he is a pretty strong closer in a campaign he was in two thousand and sixteen. Was 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 there nervousness about uh, an angst about not being able to do the type of campaigning in person that you would want to do?
1: Let me put it this way: we certainly dis- didn't discredit <laughs> that he was out there doing, you know, I mean, meaning internally, right? We, we we didn't put our head in the sands that there wasn't something to, you know, these crowds that he was getting. We saw that in 2016, right? But we were also taking an incredibly responsible um uh, take on on how you know joe biden and the surrogates um we're going to campaign um you know but i think that here's the bigger question and, and maybe you know, murph you know, it's like this is what here was my biggest worry it's like the things that you can worry about were the things i saw in 2016 which was at the end of the campaign trump took his biggest strength which was the economy and started running ads. I called them the F-150 ads, right? if you remember them. They were really good and they were really powerful. He never took his biggest strength and communicated. He basically, for six straight months, beat up Joe Biden, never learned in June, July, and August that it wasn't working, and never pivoted to making his argument that he was the guy who could save the economy. He did it once. I mean, he literally ran no ads about his biggest strength, and that was always my biggest concern. We is wanted too. He would bring that. He would bring that back in. Yeah, because that strength. was his
3: card. He had built yeah. that to a decent single digit lead, nice. and if he had pounded that nail round the clock, um, they might have broke through on it. I was I was worried about that all along, and that that was another tough one for you guys because the question is, do you keep winning with COVID? And the linkage was always fix COVID, fix the economy, and you were, you were selling tickets on that. Or do you try to get into Trump the economic manager and cut his lead a little bit? There?
1: But we always, listen, we made a decision early on uh, also that we were not going to seed the economy. I mean, we always had an economic paid communication lane. I mean, we always had a build back better. There was always some ad on about what Joe Biden was going to do for working families and small businesses. Now, there was also a healthcare lane and there was a, a COVID lane. Mm-hmm. But I think that one of the, uh, you know, hopefully... Key strategic um, uh, decisions, uh, kudos that we get is that we did not see the economic lane. And that was one fight that, quite frankly, we didn't exactly win in 2016. Um, And I think that if you take a look at the number of ads that we ran that had some type of touch point to the economy or what Joe Biden wanted to do on healthcare, what he wanted to do with minimum wage, what he wanted to do to get working families back to work or small businesses, um, we fought. Uh, on our economic terrain, which was helping working families and small businesses, and we didn't cede that ground.
2: Yeah, I, I think we talked about it a lot. I mean, it was the one number in a lot of the public polling, even the bad public polling, and we'll get into that in a little bit, but even in the bad public polling for Trump, they always the bright spot for him was, you know, six, eight-point lead on, on the economy. And I think we were always stunned that he never tried to do something with it, and that he didn't try to develop that beachhead into something more than a beachhead
1: and, uh, and gave it up? It was basically a five-point advantage, which was no big deal. But guess what? In February before COVID, it was a 15 or 18-point advantage right. on the economy. Right. So again, I don't think we, in some ways, get enough credit for narrowing that margin. We knew we would never win it, but we wanted to narrow that margin. And the fact is is that you know he blew his biggest uh, advantage and then didn't take advantage of his biggest advantage. And I think it was, you know... And then didn't have won- resources to pursue his biggest well, advantage. But, you know, at, at one point he did have resources. I still think it was bad strategic decisions. You just wonder internally, you know, you know, how often, you know, June, July, August, seeing all the different things that they attacked Joe Biden on, and our popularity ratings just kept going up. You would think at some point someone would say, hey, you know, this stuff isn't working you know they 're not buying that Joe Biden is a radical lefty or a socialist. he my God, he ran against a socialist, you know they didn 't believe any of this stuff um, th- that they would they would change gears and like again communicate on his biggest advantage, which was the economy.
3: Bernie being his antagonist in the primaries really did kind of pay off later because yes. it gave him so much cover on that because he clearly didn 't get along with the uh, with him in the beginning, later later Bernie, I thought was quite a trooper. One quick thing before you get into
2: that. I mean, I, I always was surprised from that angle of a practitioner, Anzo, that the negative Biden frame I don't think was ever really figured out by the Trump campaign. And what's surprising about that is we all now know in calls to Ukraine that how much he was worried about Joe Biden. You would have thought there would have been a research project. I mean, we did this in twenty twelve. Uh, with Mitt Romney we knew the frame we wanted to run on Romney we tested it and we did it every single day right you stick you find it and you stick yeah. to it and I'm I'm still surprised that just structurally
1: they didn't they must have hit us on 10 different things if you look really early on in June it was China and trade you know it was, you know it was a bunch of different China kind of different things you know and then the, and then of course to fund and then he's going to raise your taxes and with seniors it was going to you know he's going to destroy social security I mean, they tried every you know, that he was a radical lefty, he was a socialist. That there was, you know, there was going to be mayhem in the streets. I mean, they tried just about everything, and it didn't work. Uh, and again, they just didn't learn that they probably should have moved on to, to to talking about themselves. Well, that's a
3: tell too that Trump's running everything. So, right, cable TV switches on Fox <clears throat> in three days, whole new campaign. They're sitting there showing them ads, uh, and everything. So this is kind of like complaining about a paper cut you got from your winning lottery ticket, but let's talk down ballot because you know, the polling did create a lot of perceptions that the, the down ballot stuff was going to be stronger for the Dems. The Republicans, instead of losing, I I was at nine seats in a pool, in a pool betting pool on Republican loss. Um, they gained them and the Senate story was okay. Net plus one, but sure wasn't great. Uh, legislator legislatures in the same story. So what, what's your take on why, um, it, it, the, the Dems didn't
1: get more out of Joe Biden getting yeah. more votes than anybody in American history well I mean I think we all have theories um, for me I think that there's two things that are worth really looking at one is I think strangely that the national narrative media narrative of Biden being so far ahead which by the way Jen O'Malley always said uh, we don't see that uh, and they call them battleground states for a reason. But I think that this this n- narrative that Biden was so far ahead did create a psychology with voters that checks and balances are good things. Um, you know, they were looking at Joe Biden uh, as president, who they liked and they respected. <clears throat> they were looking at you know Nancy Pelosi and and, and the Democrats um, controlling the House. And I think that there was a checks and balance. Um, uh, uh, kind of equation going on there. The second thing, and I think this is really important, is that we just got done talking about how voters didn't believe that Joe Biden was a radical lefty and a socialist and was going to defund the police and was going to raise taxes, et cetera. They had a relationship with Joe Biden. They knew he was a moderate, right? Um, They knew that he worked across party lines. (laughs) Um, They knew, again, that he beat 19 people who were probably more liberal than him. Generically, voters believe that about Democrats, all those things. And I think it was easier to believe at the congressional and Senate level that all those things potentially could happen. Um, uh, and I think there, there was damage done uh, below Biden because there was a higher believability that's stuck to Democratic congressional and Senate candidates.
3: Yeah, that squad stuff travels, man. You know, it excites people in the progressive left, but they feel it other places. And they, I agree, the House just didn't have that identity of pragmatic, you know, reliable pair of old boots that Biden has. And so, you know, when, it, when you're scared, you, you, you bet on the hedge, and the hedge was let's not let them go crazy in the House. I totally agree with you. I,
2: I guess from a practitioner standpoint of a Democratic House or Senate campaign, what I guess alarms me a bit is this idea: we've never had more money, right? We we never. I mean, there there weren't races this year where they were thinking, "Gosh, I hope I have enough resources," or at least not many. We had Senate races that were spending more money than they've ever spent, you know, or they've spent in two or three races, and yet it still didn't seem like. We created that type of identity or inoculated against the concern around it in a way in which we should have
1: we had historic turnout. Allow me to suggest that you know if you're in Minnesota and you have historic turnout, is that good for Colin peterson right I mean, if you have historic turnout even in Michigan, is that good for Haley Stevens, who wound up a kind of our wound up winning, but it got close? My point right. is is that you know if you believe that Trump is a catalyst for getting an incredible amount of people out that don't normally get out. um, That's usually not a good thing. And again, you know, polling can't model turnout like that's part of the misses is because you expect this turnout and you get that turnout. But the fact is, is that I think that we can also uh, the, my number three here, checks and balances believability at the, at the um, congressional level about uh, the attacks on Den is that turnout in the end didn't help a lot of Democrats when you lose in battleground states.
3: Yeah, you know, funny, I always say polling is like the catalog business. It's very good at known customers, not so good at new customers because, you know, they occasionally they show up and this was a weird one because it was so big symmetrically. Uh, And again, I think the Dems just did not have a congressional identity that did them any good. Yeah. Um, and so people were more than happy to vote double for, you know, normalcy.
2: I, I want to segue into a state that I know is going to be of interest to our listeners, but before we do it, uh, Anzo, just, did you ever think you were in it in Ohio?
1: Oh, well, I mean, you know, I did. <laughs> <laughs> um,
3: there was POS data showing you guys up four or five points. You don't actually have to
2: answer it because I was just trying to poke Murphy one more time. Yeah, on, I good.
3: saw some Republican point. I can tell you Columbus was going batshit crazy. And you guys saw it, Bloomberg saw it. And they, you, I thought it was smart for you to throw a little money in there because when sure. you had it, and it was like us in Florida, we thought Florida is always tough, but I thought we had a good shot at it narrowly. And anything else, it was the one place Trump would fund, so he'd defund everywhere else. So, you know, it was we we're going to either break his bank or maybe break his votes. But, but I actually end, thought you yeah. might be able to steal Ohio, and I but was at, wrong.
1: At the end of the day, Jen O'Malley, leader of this campaign, was laser focused on 270, right? And she, course, never waver- yeah. she never wavered from that, and like Murph said, we had eventually had a lot, a lot of money, and there was reasons to go in Iowa and Georgia. Hey, there was big Senate races there, but <clears throat> nothing took away from our core states, right? She was laser focused on that, uh, and anything that we did anywhere else um, did not take away from doing everything that we could do in, in the core states.
2: We don't want to let you get away without talking about a really important state again that we're going to see some action in in January. But to give you credit, because you pollsters have been dumped on a lot uh, in the last few weeks. But um, for listeners, uh, I, I I know known John for a while. We we text a lot, and uh, John was was John thought Georgia was going to be the surprise state for Biden many 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 many, many months ago. Uh, so, um, lean, lean into that a little bit, tell us a, a little bit about Georgia and then let's, um, cause we've got a very interesting
1: set of
3: runoffs that are yeah. coming up and a big question for Biden. Cause you know, you want to yes. help, but you don't want to own it. <laughs> so it's hard to be do tricky. I
1: don't think he's a guy that's worried about owning it, but he has, let me put it. He has other things to do. Here's the thing about Georgia and Gibbs, you were there in 2008 and, and, Georgia always reminded me of North Carolina in 2008. You had a state that had a pretty big proportion of college-educated voters, much bigger than Ohio. You had a state where a lot of people came from where? Out of state. Reacher's Triangle. You had Charlotte, the financial Yeah, the metro growth, yeah. You had 20% of the electorate that was going to be African American. And Barack Obama created an infrastructure within that community to make it playable, and we won it. And Georgia is very much like that. Stacey Abrams in 2018 created and nurtured an infrastructure that was really important to build on. At the same time, African-Americans made up nine or ten points bigger share of the electorate than North Carolina. You had yeah. the fastest rising rate of Latinos and Asians of any other, uh, any state in the nation. You had the suburbs of Cobb and Gwinnett, um, acting like the suburbs in Oakland County, Michigan, Mike, Uh, right? I mean, yeah, the suburbs ain't what they
3: used to be for the GOP. Right.
1: We had taken Georgia six in 2018. We took Georgia seven this year. And so you you had a lot of people coming from out of state because there's so many fortune 500 companies. You had a higher educated, even uh, among whites and blacks. And so you know, just naturally in 2008 and um, uh, 12, 16, without any presidential campaign playing there, it just became more democratic, more democratic. And if you look at the trajectory of Cobb and Gwinnett, it was, it's amazing. You know, Well, I was um, going to
2: say, just for our listeners, you know, Cobb and Gwinnett uh, y- used to be areas that sent Newt Gingrich for, uh, oh, for many yeah. years to Congress. And now uh, you're talking about great, great areas and real growth areas for, de- for
3: Democrats. I am so ancient, so old, that you young whippersnappers, I actually am a veteran of the 1992 Senate runoff in Georgia with Fowler and Coverdell. And in the old Georgia, which was more Republican-friendly, it was close. Now, Weiss was the incumbent. We finished narrowly behind him, and then we came back to beat him in the runoff. And one of the things that happened, and we'll see if that model holds, because as as we've been talking about, Georgia has really become more of a Northern Virginia-esque New South State than it used to be. Um, often it's the winner that has a little trouble um, recreating it. And if the turnout is a few beats off, which was why I think they're they're hiding Senator Perdue because he's a Fulton County turnout machine with his comedy routines, uh, I think it'll be tough, but I, I'm not ruling it out. And I think the Repubs are nervous too because the new Georgia, you know, is is a jump ball.
1: Well, and they, they're they nervous also because, you know, you have John Ossoff, who, again, even though he didn't win that special election, it was probably, a you know, four months too early. People were still giving Trump the benefit of the doubt back then in April when he ran that special election. You know, he's a moderate. He talks about working across party lines. He gets it. He gets the memo. Uh, and then, of course, you have Reverend uh, Warnock, uh, African-American, King Baptist Church, values, et cetera. Now, they're attacking both of them, et cetera, et cetera. But the fact is, is that, you know, you, you have the 30-30 rule in Georgia, right? If you can get as close to 30 percent of the electorate African-American and if you can get 30 percent of whites, you know, you're within the ball game. Atlanta right. Journal-Constitution came out with a poll. They're both within the ball ballgame. Um, yeah, you can say it's about turnout, but it's really also uh, about, you know, getting your share um, of uh, the white vote by uh, and also meeting your African-American and Latino numbers, Um, but it's gonna be competitive. Uh, I think that one of the things that you have is there's a common thematic against Loeffler and Purdue that they're super rich people who somehow being that rich wasn't enough and they also had to like game the system on stocks and insider trading, et cetera. And so they've opened themselves up to a really nice contrast as well and we'll see whether that matters.
3: Yeah, you know, it is a, in my view, there is no superstar candidate running. The two incumbents have a lot of weaknesses. Ossoff, I think, has a certain aggressiveness, which is working for him. Warnock is impressive, but, you know, he's got some controversial stuff. There are good wedge issues for the R's there. So I think it's a real toss-up, though. If I had to put a gun to my head, I'd say slight-edge R. We'll see, because God knows it's going to be the slug. It's one reason the Repubs are being so bad about Trump. You know, they, they want the army of Trump not to uh be angry at Republican senators because they want everybody there on the on the runoff.
2: Well, and I think, you know, you mentioned the 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 Weiss Fowler uh race uh with Paul Coverdale in nineteen ninety two. Um, you know, that race ends up being decided uh by sixteen thousand, a little more than sixteen thousand votes yep, for, for Coverdale. He comes back. <laughs> yeah. Um and but the key is, as you mentioned, Murphy, is the turnout's about 55% of what it is in the general election. And I think it really is going to be, you know, and it'll be interesting to see whether do, does all this controversy around the vote and and what, what uh, Anzo, you mentioned earlier around the Republican secretary of state there, what, what does that do to Republican turnout in, in early January? Does the, where does it how does that check and balance play with an incoming democratic president? Does um, does having uh, Reverend Warnock on the ballot uh, do a lot in terms of that black turnout that you talked about needing to get folks re-engaged and back out into the polls so that you can get the numbers you need to? I, I think it's going to be fascinating to watch. Look, Georgia was a—I I kept hitting <laughs> refresh on my computer screen, um, probably a thousand times, literally between uh, Tuesday night and and them finally essentially calling it, and and it's now being certified, but I think it's going to be a fascinating turnout race to watch uh, because I think, John, the points that you made around what Georgia looks like is this is going to be a good state for Democrats, not just in this cycle, not just like it was in 1992 for for Bill Clinton. I, I think this is going to be a battleground state for a long time.
1: There may be a lot of people on the presidential side and the Democratic side that says, "Well, is Florida a battleground state anymore?" You know, uh, and you know uh, uh, whether or not you can take uh, North Carolina. So, yeah, Georgia is going to be, you know, a battleground state, and there's no doubt about that because, quite frankly, we won it, <laughs> and there's right. no reason that you can't with the right again. Yeah. So we got to finish up with the question to the
3: Ayatollah now of political pollas, President's Pollster. It's a good title. What was with the polling errors this time? What do you think?
1: First of all, let's just acknowledge that this is a tough industry and that if the polling industry doesn't continue to innovate and, you know, with an incredible low response rate, we're constantly innovating in terms of how we're getting interviews and getting the right interviews. I think that there's a couple things that you just again have to say is that one I actually believe that there's a certain Trump interference if you will, right? We saw it in 16, we saw it in 20, but in 18, you know, pollsters kind of felt like we're back, right? You know, on the Nostradamus side of it, the per, you know, pronostication side of it. Naturally, 90% of what we do is on the message development side of it, but you know, People think of us as only just the big number, little number. The other thing is, is that one of the things that we always um, uh, drove in, uh, in the campaign was we just always believed that Biden needed to be at 49, 50, or 51, that it was always about where we were. It wasn't about the margin, right? And for those of us who are researchers and do look at numbers all the time and analyze, We understand that that's the importance and not the margin. I mean, you could, for example, I've done so much work in North Carolina. You know, we did Roy Cooper. He had to be at 50 or 51% to win. And guess what? Democrats in battleground states now, they get what they poll. Now, you know, that is not a narrative that uh, media polls are ever going to try to explain to, to consumers, but that's the thing that we know. You could have a small margin, like Cal Cunningham could have a small margin lead, But be at 47 and you know he's going to lose because we've seen that dynamic so often. And so, you know, listen, you know, there's also this conflation between what media polls and public polls are out there versus what we do internally. Um, And yes, we had it closer. General Malley kept telling people uh, that we had it closer. But we are becoming the defenders of shitty media polling. Quite frankly, <laughs> yeah. I mean, like, there's every every university out there no, has I a know. polling unit that now every major univ- major media outlet is going to um, is going to uh, uh, actually report, and that's a problem.
2: Yeah. No. I, I look. I've said on this a countless number of times. When when it comes to media polling, you often get exactly what you pay for, and if somebody goes to a TV station and says. I can do a great poll for $2,000 and you can get some clicks out of it. Uh, be, be, beware! it is. It warms my heart a bit on the polling side to hear that your numbers were closer than, than to, to where this thing ended up. than you know, I'm still stunned, uh, at, at reading a Washington post poll that had <laughs> Joe Biden up 17 in Wisconsin. Yeah, I'm I mean, thinking to myself, that, like, how did, how, right. how did somebody not like stand in front of that and say, Let's not put this out. Uh, yeah,
1: that's right. I mean, the, the bottom line is it was, pro- you know, it was probably wrong. They probably knew it was an outlier, and they probably, put, uh, you know, uh, still uh, reported it. And again, I will go back to as a researcher and an analyst, what I believed when I saw numbers, my numbers, or wherever, is it was a, the important number was where was Joe Biden at in the poll, and if he was at 49, 50, 51, that's where you needed to be in a battleground state, because I think we're in a time when in a battleground state, because of a lot of different dynamics, especially against Trump, you are going to get, meaning your final result, what you pull. What's interesting, if you go to 538 or real clear politics, and you look at the average of all the state polls, and you find where Biden is in that poll, where his last number was, not the margin, right? And where the results it's within one and one and a half points. Um, and so there's something to learn there, right? right? There's something to learn. Yeah,
2: we told our listeners, average, average, average. Don't get excited about one poll. How do you think you can get better on some of the the turnout side of it? Because yeah. I, I was struck by two things, and we'll, we'll get you out on this. But the first was, um, you, you know, Anselt took a lot of heat in Iowa and nailed it. Uh, and, and, you know, if we say this a thousand times we can't apologize enough for the Democratic reaction to that poll. But I'm also struck and you'll remember this and you know, in twenty twelve, that last Air Force One ride from Iowa to Chicago, we 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 told the president of the United States then, Barack Obama, that he was going to be reelected the next day. And the lore of history says the Romney people had a very similar discussion with Mitt Romney and told They're him right. yeah. he was going to be president of the United States yeah. the
1: next day. Republicans miss it in yeah,
2: Right. And the difference for listeners was they thought the turnout, it wasn't that they were polling different people. They, we, we were all calling largely the same people, probably getting the same result. They just put it through a metric of a turnout percentage that was different than what we did. And in fact, as I understand it, they didn't think that the black vote would be what it was in 2008. I think one of the things you and I could have agreed on after about seven seconds and probably told them is if there's one group, we're definitely not worried about it's black voters in 2012, but I'm interested in, in do you see that there's maybe improvements on that side of the polling house?
1: No, because it's not a polling problem. It's usually an analytics problem, right? There's modelers. Um, You know, we don't, pollsters don't model that out. I mean, I'll give you a great example. In, in 2018, you know the, the modeler said that 6.9 million people were gonna turn out in Florida, and 8.3 million turned out. I mean, that's, like, that's a really big difference. Um, I think that the answer at the end of the day, for all of us to get closer, better, whatever, um, uh, it, to get the right interviews, et cetera, is that we're, everyone's gonna have to go to multimodal. We, start, we do that, you almost see no media poll Uh, doing landline sell and some type of online where they're combining all of that. They're doing one or the other and not all of them. And I think that that will help. Uh, We've moved to that. Uh, And just let me tell you, the interviews that you get in landline are a lot different than the interviews you get on the cell phone. And the interviews that are text to web, meaning online, are a lot different than both of those. And so, you know, I think, again, innovating, is the is the is what we're going to continually have to do
2: all right anzo again congratulations i'm happy for you not just for the country but for you and uh (laughs) the last thing i would say to you before we leave is uh
1: war damn eagle roll tide and we'll see you in the saddle uh riding across iowa the summer uh mike murphy peace out brother
3: uh, go blue or, or fight on Hoyas. I gotta, I gotta fight back on this Alabama infomercial <laughs> here. Yeah, congratulations. And so what a tremendous campaign you guys should be very proud. And, uh, now time to unite the country. And after that's done, I'll be back over to the Republicans trying to stop world socialism.
1: <laughs> so <laughs> thanks for doing this, pal. Thanks a lot. Talk to you later.
3: Murphy. Good to see you
2: and, uh, talk soon. No mailbag this week. Uh, cause we had a great conversation, but, uh, We'll be back next week with it.
3: Absolutely. Gibbs. all great to see you too. And we're we'll talking again soon. All right. See you guys. Bye.